invite you to take out your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew 22, verse 35. It says, And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first, first and great commandment. This is the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Please be seated. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this privilege of getting to gather together as your people. We thank you for what you have been doing among us. We thank you for the fact that we may celebrate your resurrection every week. Lord, we pray now that you would send your spirit to do what only you can, to open up our ears, our eyes, our hearts, and our minds to receive your word. Lord, we pray that as your word is proclaimed, that it, you would cause it to come alive in the hearts of your people. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So we come now to the end of our series on the Missio Day, uh, that is the mission of God in the world. Now over the past couple months, we've been looking at God's plan to redeem his fallen creation. And we've been looking at various elements of this plan. Now for the past two Lord's Days, we've looked at the place of children in the Missio Day. Uh, both how they function in God's plan of redemption and how we as parents are called to bring up our children in the paideia of the Lord, the discipline of the Lord, that is the full enculturation of our children in a Christian culture. And so for our sermon this morning, we're going to look further at how to bring up our children in the paideia of the Lord and in the process sketch an outline of the life and character of a Christian in very practical terms. Now, the reason that I think we can hit these two birds with one stone is because one of the most important elements in bringing up our children in the discipline and admonition of the Lord is to seek to win our children by our own example. We must model and live out for them what the life of a godly Christian looks like. Now, God, of course, can save anyone. In John chapter 3, Jesus compares the Holy Spirit to the wind that blows where it wishes. And he says, so it is with the Holy Spirit. And so God can and does save people out of any situation. But let it not be said that God saved our children in spite of their parents' bad example. Let it instead be true that God used us and the example that we lived out as one of the greatest means of strengthening and confirming the faith that he granted to our children. Let our lives and the homes that we built be a tremendous advantage and tremendous blessing to the faith of our children, and not an obstacle that had to be overcome. On a human level, there is probably no more significant factor 
in determining whether or not our children will believe what we teach them about the gospel than the question of how we live it out. Your life will either strengthen and support what you've been teaching your children about God, or it will greatly undermine what you've been teaching them about God. Now just consider again what we're teaching. The Christian message is not something that you can be wishy-washy about. The Christian message is the good news that although we are sinful people who have sinned against Almighty God and are deserving of His eternal wrath, God sent His Son to live the life that we were required to live. He sent His Son to die in our place, taking God's wrath against our sin, who then rose to life, defeating death. Christ now offers eternal life to all who would turn from their sin and put their faith in him. We see through scripture that conversion to Christianity, becoming a Christian, involves a change of heart, a change of direction. God removes our heart of stone, and in its place he grants us a heart of flesh, one that works properly. We are then called to live a life that pleases God. And that, of course, is a life centered upon the Lord. And when Jesus was asked about the greatest commandment, right, which commandment best summarizes the whole duty of man, which encapsulates most of the rest of the law, he said, quoting from Deuteronomy, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. The Christian life, therefore, is to be marked, characterized by a whole-hearted, whole-souled, whole-minded devotion to God. We see in this that every part of us, everything we are, everything we do, is to be devoted to God. The Christian proclamation is that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is our Lord, our master, our savior, that we are his followers, his disciples, his servants. 1 John 2 verse 6 says, whoever says he abides in him, in Christ, ought to walk in the same way that he walked. We are his followers we are then declaring to our children this glorious gospel, telling them with our mouths that there is nothing more important to us than Christ. If you're telling somebody you are a Christian, that's what you are telling them. There's nothing more important to us than Christ. We are declaring to them that eternity is at stake in these matters. Right? These are questions of heaven and hell, judgment or blessing. We declare that wholehearted devotion is essential. Do we back up these claims by the way we live our lives? The fact is, everything that we do sends a message. We are constantly communicating. And so if you tell your children that Christ is to be the most important thing, in the life of a Christian, but you cannot be bothered to open your Bible in the home, 
you are communicating something. If you tell your children that God is great, that God is worthy to be praised, that he is deserving of our worship, but then you don't even open your mouth to sing his praises with the saints, you are communicating something. Our lives will either confirm and affirm to our children the things we are teaching them, or our lives will undermine what we are teaching to our children. So then, what is to characterize the life of a disciple? How can we live so that we would not undermine our teachings to our children? And then secondly, what are the practices that a faithful Christian ought to live out every day? Well, let's begin with character. First, zeal. The life of a Christian ought to be marked by zeal for the Lord. Romans 12 verse 11 says, Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. So do not be slothful. Do not be lacking. Do not be lazy in your zeal. Now a zealous person in this sense is someone who is eagerly and enthusiastically ready to do the Lord's will and to do it speedily. You can picture a horse that's just chomping at the bit, ready to run. Uh, the zealous person is eager to please the Lord, to do his will, to serve him, to advance his cause. They are excited for the things of God. Do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Now, the word translated as fervent is the Greek word to boil over, to be hot, to bubble over, hot enough to boil. The Helps Word Study says, it is to show great zeal, to be ardently passionate, literally boiling with interest or desire, to be deeply committed to something with the implication of accompanying desire. It is to be earnest, to set one's heart on, to be completely intent upon. So we are looking here at passion, a white-hot passion, enthusiasm. And this fervency of spirit, we see, is to characterize every Christian. Notice, this is a command given to the church. This is the baseline. If we are lacking in our zeal, if we are not fervent in spirit, if we are cold-hearted, if we are apathetic, we ought to consider this as having backslidden. Now, many people will try to excuse themselves at this point and say, well, you know, I'm just not a very passionate person. You know, that's great if other people are zealous and passionate for the Lord, uh, but, you know, that's just not really the way I am. I'm not an enthusiastic type of person. Really, to borrow an illustration from Bodhi Bakum, if you are such a passionless person, then we would ask you, when you're on the golf course and you biff a shot, you must always give a very dispassionate response. I seem to have hit that one poorly. When your team is in the finals and the kicker missed the field goal and you lost on the last play of the game, is your response to say calmly, we appear to have lost the match. When your car needed work 
and you got the giant bill from the mechanic, you clearly responded with a calm, cool, and collected, that is a very large sum of money I'm going to have to pay. Now, my guess is that for most of us, if we find the right thing, we can be very passionate people. Now, for someone like this who says they're not, they're just not passionate in order to excuse themselves from having passion for the Lord, the fact is, it's not that they are not a passionate person, it's just that their faith doesn't matter as much to them as their golf game, their sports team, or their bank account. Again, from Bodhi Bauckham, if you can't say amen, you ought to say ouch. So fill it in, whatever it is for you, cars, hunting, fishing, dirt bikes, video games, movies, TV shows, books, whether it's homesteading, gardening, making sourdough, getting into organic foods, essential oils, our children, whatever it is, uh, we all have something in our lives that we can get very passionate about. Right? Even if you aren't a person who gets outwardly animated and excitable, you are likely very fervent in spirit when it comes to this thing, right? It is very important to you. It is dear to you. You are eager for it. It is high in your affections. What we see from scripture is that for Christians, God must be uppermost in our affections. That is, he must be first in our hearts, sitting on the throne of our hearts. We are to treasure God as being supremely valuable. And we know, of course, that it is idolatry of the heart when we hold anything to be more valuable than God. We are to be passionate for the Lord. Zealous to obey God, to see his will done. Do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Passion, zeal, this spiritual fervor, these things are not meant to be optional additives to the Christian life. These are not things that are merely reserved for new Christians or for young people coming back from youth retreats. Rather, they are to be part of the Christian's daily life and experience. This is part of the fruit of a heart that has encountered and been transformed by the glory and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. These things are the natural byproducts of having encountered the true and living God. If God is as glorious as scripture says, then for a person to know God, to have a true apprehension of even a fraction of his majesty, power, beauty, and glory, would this not be enough to leave a redeemed heart in perpetual awe and wonder? So brothers and sisters, do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Next, the life of a Christian ought to be marked 
by a pursuit of holiness. The heart that loves God above all things, that holds him as supremely valuable, is a heart that is zealous to obey him, a heart that is eager to please him. This means that a Christian will be consistently and militantly battling against all the sin in their lives. Sin is rebellion against God. Colossians 3 verse 5 says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Then he lists a few things. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion or lust, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. We must remember that sin is so serious that it took the death and suffering of God the Son in order to atone for it. That man spits upon the sacrifice of Christ who treats it as a license for sin. He scorns the atoning work of Christ. He makes a mockery of grace and is in fact only deceiving himself for he is simply storing up wrath for the day of judgment. Christians do not continue to live in unrepentant sin. They are marked by continual war against sin. Put to death that which is earthly in you. Kill your indwelling sin. This is a lifelong battle. We are to be marked as believers by a continual pursuit of holiness. And so we must be diligent to self-examine. Right? If you come to Sunday and we move to our time of corporate confession of sin and you can't think of anything at all to confess, please do not be so naive as to assume that you've had a perfectly sinless week. You've simply not been paying close enough attention. The fact is, until the Lord returns or calls us home, every single one of us will always have things to be working on, ways in which we can be growing in grace, sins that we can be laboring to put to death. The Christian life is to be marked by this continual pursuit of holiness. All right, well, that's all that we're going to say for the character of a Christian. And of course, there's a lot more that we could say. Uh, but let's move on now to some of the practices. So very, very practically, how do we grow in our zeal, in our love for God, right? If we hear that description of the Christian life and we realize, man, that's that's not me right now. I'm, I'm falling short of that. Uh, what are the tangible, practical things that we can begin doing today to pursue that? Right? How do we get there? What are the things that every Christian should do every single day and every single week? How can we grow in Christian character, strengthen our faith, grow in grace? And what should we be doing to model for our children the life of a disciple? Firstly, we must live lives 
that are daily saturated by the scriptures. You can turn with me to Deuteronomy 6. We'll read verses 4 to 6. <clears throat> Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 6. So look at the portrait of a God-fearing man that is painted in this passage. It begins with the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So notice here that the one who is living out a life demonstrating love for God with heart, soul, mind, and strength is going to be someone who is diligently committed to passing on that faith to their children. This is going to be a person who will be saturated in the law of God. God's word is on his heart. It is on his hand. It is before his face. It is on his doorposts and his gates. And I hope we see what God is concerned with here. This is not merely externalism. You could have Bible verses plastered all over your house, on your t-shirts, on your coffee cups, on, on your, you know, you could have tattoos of it on your arm and, and whatnot. And none of that will matter if God's word does not get into your heart. Verse 6, these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Psalm 19, verses 7 and 8 says this, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, Rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Now I'll just draw a very simple point. Let us notice what God's law in this case is said to do. It revives the soul. It makes wise the simple. It rejoices the heart. And it enlightens the eyes. Brothers and sisters, God's law word will do none of these things for you unless you take it in. These benefits that are described here can only be received by those who know the word of God. Those who would internalize the word of God. You will get none of the soul-reviving, wisdom-producing, heart-rejoicing, eye-enlightening benefits lest you actually get into the Word. The Word must be on your heart. Now you can picture a man famished after a long journey, 
who arrives finally and sits down in front of a piping hot plate of rich food. And he begins to explain how wonderful this food is. Oh, it is so nutritious. It has all the food groups. It has vitamins, nutrients, proteins, and carbs. This food can satisfy hunger. It can nourish the body. What wonderful food. This man has all the right answers about this food. But he will derive none of the benefits from it unless he actually starts eating. I think the same is true for us. We can have all the right answers about the inerrancy, about the infallibility, the divine nature and authority of the living and active word of God. If we were asked, we might be able to answer, yes, it is breathed out by God. We may even know the word theonistos. We may know that it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. It is unique. It is the sole infallible rule for life and practice. We can have all these right answers and have this accurate view of the scriptures, but it will help us nothing unless we actually read it. Now back to our famished traveler waxing eloquent about this wonderful food in front of him, if all that he ever did was talk and never began to eat, how long would it be before you would start to question whether he really believed what he was saying about the food? So it is for us if we teach our children that the Bible is the word of the true and living God, but then we cannot be bothered to open this Bible in our homes, our children would have very good reason to wonder whether we really believed what we were telling them. Actions can speak louder than words. And so if your words are not supported by your actions, do not expect people to put much stock in your words. So brothers and sisters, live it out. If at all possible, make it a daily priority to spend time in the word of God. And yes, I know we live busy lives, but one lesson from my childhood that I'm very thankful for is that my dad would never let me get away with saying I didn't have time for something. The fact is, 99.9% of the time, I simply didn't make time. Right? This item in question was not a priority for me. Let us not use the excuse of saying that we had no time to spend in the Word when we did have time to watch TV, to browse social media, to watch funny cat videos on YouTube, to play video games, or to pursue our hobbies. Now, the fact is, for most of us, we could have time, but we simply choose not to make time in the Word a priority. The Word will not shape us if we do not take it in. It will not be on our hearts 
if we do not know what it says. Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. Uh, day and night, and on his law he meditates day and night. Dear Christian, do you meditate on the word of God? Right, if we are now reading it, that's fantastic. But do we then take the time to reflect on it, to chew on it, to drill these truths down into our hearts through reflection? Now, remembering the reason why we are reading is important here, right? If we do begin reading the Bible simply because our pastor told us to, and we'd feel guilty now if we didn't, uh, what's likely is that we'll end up taking a checkbox approach. You know, well, this is something I have to do to prove to myself and my kids that I value the Bible, yada, yada, yada. So I'll check off that box and move on with my day. If we approach the scriptures like this, we are like a person who takes out a piece of gum, places it gently on our tongue for a split second before we spit it out. Now certainly, any time in the word is better than no time in the word. But we must remember why we are doing it. What is our goal? Well, we want to please our Heavenly Father. We are seeking to honor the God that we say we love with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We want to know his will for our lives. We want to learn how to please him. We want to encounter him through the scriptures. We want our souls revived, our hearts rejoiced, our eyes enlightened. We want to gain wisdom to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to see the glory of God and through the seeing to be transformed from one degree of glory to another. 2 Corinthians 3.18 To gain these benefits, we need to reflect on the scriptures, to meditate on them, as the psalmist describes. Just as with a piece of gum, to really draw out the flavor, to gain the benefits from it, you can't simply drop it on your tongue and spit it out. You have to chew on it. Work it around. Squeeze out those flavors to fully receive all that it has to give to you. So with scripture, we must meditate, reflect, ponder, think on, ask questions, and work it through in our minds. And notice what else is required in Psalm 1. If we would meditate on the law both day and night, presumably we would need to have some scripture memorized. It is through memorization that we can take scripture with us. It is through memorization that we can take God's word with us into our daily lives. It is through memorization that the promises of God in his word will strengthen us and build us up and help us throughout the day. Nobody has ever been strengthened by a promise they didn't know. So brothers and sisters, spend time 
in the word of God. Memorize and meditate. Be strengthened, built up, and let the scriptures accomplish their intended function in your life. Get in the word daily. Young people, kids, teenagers, you who love the Lord, this is not only something for adults. Don't tell yourself that this is something you're going to start doing when you're older. Begin now. Right? Find a Bible reading plan and commit to reading through the entire Bible. Or if that's too daunting, start with the Gospels or start with the New Testament. And when you finish, go back and do it again. I guarantee you that you will find a new, that you will find new, fresh, and glorious things every time you read through the Bible. Now, this has been my practice for a number of years now, and I just wish that I could go back in time and convince my younger self to start that sooner. It will benefit you immensely. As John Piper put it, I have never met a mature, fruitful, strong, spiritually discerning Christian who is not full of Scripture and devoted to regular meditation of Scripture and devoted to storing it up through, in the heart through Bible memorization. And that is not a coincidence. Spend time in the Word every day. Make it a daily priority. Next point. Make prayer a vital part of your day. Now, if Scripture is how God speaks to us, if it's how he communicates to us, prayer is how we answer back to God. We bring him our requests and petitions, confessing our sins to him, thanking him for his blessings. Prayer is a remarkable privilege and an astounding blessing, one which we Christians frequently take for granted. Now consider again who God is. Eternal, almighty, all-knowing, self-existent, self-sufficient, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, holy, just, and righteous, clothed in majesty and splendor, the like of which heavenly creatures dare not even look on directly. God is the great king, the ancient of days, our maker, our creator. And we, the creatures he made from the dirt, have rebelled against him. We have sinned against him, scorning his majesty, spitting upon his worth. Why should he hear anything we have to say? There's been a lot of attention given recently uh, to the concept of monarchy uh, with the passing of Queen Elizabeth. Now, reflect on that for a moment. What a privilege it would be to gain an audience with a reigning monarch. Right, to get to go before the king or before the queen, let alone to know that they had invited you there and that they had even told you perhaps to bring a petition to them that they were committed to answering. What an amazing privilege that would be. How much more, how much more to be granted an audience 
with the king of all creation. And this is a privilege that we only have because of Christ. As sinners, we have no right to come before God. If we are simply looking at what we deserve for what we have done, God owes us nothing but his wrath. But in his great love, he sent his only son to die in our place, to atone for our sin, to propitiate his wrath. Christ has established a new and everlasting covenant in his blood. And this is a covenant in which he, Christ, has fulfilled all the obligations and has purchased all the blessings. His life, his death, his resurrection, ascension, and work of intercession as our high priest are the reasons why we who have been united to him may now approach the throne of God. Kids, have you ever wondered why we end our prayers saying, in Jesus' name we pray? It's actually a reminder of the gospel. It is a reminder that we may only come to God, bringing our petitions to him through Christ. It is only because he bore our wrath, he provided our righteousness, and he is now our advocate, our intercessor, our mediator before the Father, that we can come into the presence of God. And so we always say, in Christ's name, through Christ, we pray. And God looks upon us with the love and favor he has for his son. We stand before him, counted righteous, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, counted as righteous and sinless because of the work of our great high priest. Because of Christ, we are now invited and may reverently yet boldly approach the eternal throne with our confessions, our prayers, and petitions. Brothers and sisters, prayer is an amazing privilege. And God not only hears our prayers, but he has told us that prayer is powerful and effective, that it has great power as it is working, James 5, 16. God not only hears prayers, but he answers prayers. Jesus said some remarkable things. John 15, verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Mark eleven twenty four. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Luke eleven nine. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Now, if you're like me, one of the first things that starts in your hearts and minds is the objections. Right? You hear this, but then you think of times in your lives when you prayed for something earnestly and you didn't receive it. 
Now, such experiences can leave you feeling jaded and maybe even cynical when you hear statements like these. Now, we will save the question of unanswered prayer for another time. But for now, let us just challenge our cynicism. Right? If it seems to us like Jesus was overstating things in these texts, let us ask ourselves, do we trust him? Do we trust the Lord Jesus Christ? Do we believe the things that he has told us? If we do, then let us ask, what was Jesus intending to do by making such grandiose statements about prayer? Well, to ask that question is to answer it. He's trying to convince us to pray, to show us the value and the power of prayer so that we would be people who would pray. We are to view prayer as a tremendous blessing and as a powerful means that God will use in the world to change things, to bring about real results, things he would not have done if we had not prayed. So before we put up our walls and trot out our objections and our counterexamples, let us first ask if we are viewing prayer in the way that God clearly wants us to. Prayer, according to scripture, is powerful and effective. We have no idea how much God might be prepared to bless us, to bless our church, to bless the growth of the kingdom in our lifetimes, to bless our families and loved ones, if we would simply take him at his word, get down on our knees, and pray. We have no idea. Now, I wonder if when we get to heaven, if God will show us or tell us about all the blessings that we left on the table, so to speak, because of our prayerlessness. Will he show us how much more help we could have had? What could have been different had we simply prayed? Now, I don't know. But let us not now live with guilt over past prayerlessness but let us be motivated to be a people of prayer moving forward. Let us be people like Jacob who wrestled with God saying, I will not let you go until you bless me. Let us pray as Jesus taught us to pray, like the persistent widow who came again and again and again to the judge who finally gave in and gave her justice. Jesus was telling us, that's how you pray. Come again, be like that widow, coming and coming. For if even an unrighteous judge will eventually give in, how much more will your loving, benevolent, righteous, heavenly Father be willing to receive and answer the prayers of his people? As Luke 18 begins, always pray and do not lose heart. Prayer is an essential part of the Christian life, and so we must pray every day. As a Puritan author John Bunyan put it, you can do more than pray after you've prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. Pray often, for prayer is a shield to the soul, a sacrifice to God, and a scourge to Satan. Or as Martin Luther once put it, 
I have so much to do today that I have to spend an extra hour in prayer. If we could gain a right view of prayer, we would grow to see it as one of, or perhaps the most important and effectual duties that we will perform in our day. You cannot do more than pray until you pray. Prayer is not something to simply get out of the way so that we can then get to our duties. Prayer is our duty. It is essential. It is not something that we should ever skip. We need God's help in all that we do. Go to him in prayer. Like a father desiring his children to come close, he wants us to come and to ask. So every day, establish set times of prayer. Make a holy appointment with God that you will keep day in and day out. Luke 5, verse 16 says of Jesus that he would often withdraw to desolate places and pray. Jesus prioritized set-apart times of prayer. He modeled for us, his disciples, what a life devoted to prayer looked like. And if the Son of God lived a life devoted to prayer, how much more ought we to pray? We who are weak, stubborn, and sinful, we who wander so easily and will so quickly forget God, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love, how much more do we need the help of Almighty God? Establish set times of prayer where you will pray every day. Combine this with, with your Bible reading if you can. Read God's word, meditate on it, then respond in prayer. It is also essential that we continue to pray throughout our day. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says, pray continually or pray without ceasing. Now this, of course, does not mean that we are to spend our entire day on our knees, hands folded, eyes closed, but rather that we would be continually lifting up little prayers to God every day. Whatever it is that you're doing, soak it in prayer. Ask for God's help. Ask him to help you see him in it, for the grace to do this thing well, for the wisdom to respond to whatever comes, that whatever you do, you may glorify him in it and through it. G.K. Chesterton once wrote, you say grace before meals. All right, but I say grace before the play and the opera, and grace before the concert and the pantomime. And grace before I open a book. And grace before sketching, boxing, walking, playing, dancing. And grace before I dip the pen in ink. Close quote. What area of life is there that God is not involved in? What activity do you perform about which God has nothing to say? About which you would not want his blessing? Whatever you do, bring it to the Lord. Pray without ceasing. Another vitally important practice is daily family worship. 
Now, family worship is when the whole household comes together to worship God. It is a tragedy that daily family worship has largely fallen out of the consciousness of the modern church. To the Puritans and Reformers, daily family worship was seen as a vital and essential duty of the Christian life. Our church's confession, the 1689, puts it like this. God is to be worshipped everywhere in spirit and in truth, daily in each family, and privately by each individual. Also, more formal worship is to be performed in public assemblies, and these must not be carelessly or deliberately neglected or forsaken when God, by his word or providence, calls us to them. So catch that. We are to worship God first publicly, as we're doing now, but also privately as individuals, as we've outlined above, and daily in each family. Now, the companion document to the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, which is the Westminster Directory for Public Worship, even prescribed church discipline for fathers who refuse to lead their families in worship in their homes. If a man neglected his duty, he was to be admonished privately, and if he continued to neglect his spiritual responsibility to his family, the directory gave these instructions. He is to be gravely and sadly reproved by the elders, after which reproof, if he be found still to neglect family worship, let him be, for his obstinacy in such an offense, suspended and debarred from the Lord's Supper, as being justly esteemed unworthy to communicate therein till he amend. Puritan Thomas Manton wrote some heavy words, saying that the neglect of family worship ought to be viewed as covenant-breaking with God and betraying the souls of their children to the devil. Wow. Now, it is amazing how many in the church today have not even heard of family worship, let alone thought of it as something they should be doing, when we see just a few generations earlier that it was seen as such a vital duty that its neglect was then thought to be worthy of church discipline. Now we must understand, to be a Christian is to be a worshiper of God. A true Christian, a true disciple of Jesus Christ, as we've seen, is one who loves God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. We ask, would such a person not want to worship God daily with their families? Is there not something in the redeemed heart that says, yes, my God is worthy of this and of so much more. I delight to worship him daily. Now, if we would see our children brought up in the paideia of the Lord, as we covered last week, that is to bring them up in a robustly Christian culture, daily family worship will form an essential component of this. Teach and model for them that a Christian is a worshiper. Let them see it through your zeal for the Lord, 
through your commitment to kill sin, through your personal daily practices, and especially through your commitment to daily family worship. Let each of you say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. This may be one of the most important things you do for the development of your children's faith. Puritan author Richard Baxter writes, I willingly appeal I willingly appeal to the experience of all the holy families in the world. Whoever used these duties seriously and found not the benefits. What families be they in which grace and heavenly mindedness prosper, but those that use these duties? Compare in all your towns, cities, and villages the families that read the scriptures, pray, and praise God with those that do not and see the difference. Which of them abound more with impiety, with oaths and cursings, with railings and drunkenness, with whoredoms and worldliness, and such? And which abound most in faith and patience, in temperance and charity, in repentance and hope, and such? The controversy is not hard to decide. Close quote. Now very practically, how do we do this? Well, Don Whitney writes, basically, there are three elements to family worship. Read the Bible, pray, and sing. Only three syllables to remember. Read, pray, sing. And I would like to add catechize. Now, read the Bible section by section, chapter by chapter, working through the books of the Bible. Then briefly explain and apply it to your children. For younger children, you may want to stick with shorter sections or stay in the narratives, the stories of the Bible to keep their attention. Then pray with your family. There are a lot of options here. You can take prayer requests from your family. You can pray about something that came up in the text that you read. You can pray for your church family. You can pray for your pastors and deacons. You can pray for the community, for the nation, for the world. You can pray the Lord's Prayer with your children or use it as the outline for a longer prayer, which you can lead yourself, or you can give each family member a turn to pray. However you do it, pray with your family. And sing. Sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Teach your children some of the songs that we do regularly in church, and then watch them light up when they recognize one of those songs on the Lord's Day. Songs are a powerful means of communication. Words put to melody can stick in our minds in ways that words by themselves rarely will. Now, advertisers know this, and they take advantage of it by putting their slogans into jingles. I'd be willing to bet most of us have a few jingles memorized that we could sing if put on the spot. Many of us as well likely still have some Bible memory, uh, memory verses uh, that we memorized uh, that were, pardon me, we likely have scripture memorized that was set to music we learned as children. Right, we could sing the verse when asked. Songs shape us. They are an important element of a paideia. Generally speaking, people are heavily influenced by the songs that they sing. Those words can get into our minds and can powerfully shape our thinking. There's a famous saying, let me make the songs of a nation and I care not 
who makes its laws. Music is powerful, and God commands us to use music and singing to worship him. Psalm 95, 1 and 2, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. Psalm 100, make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Ephesians 5.19 instructs us to be addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. God even saw fit to include 150 divinely inspired songs for us to sing that he put into the canon of scripture. The psalms are songs. They are meant to be sung. And so we see from scripture, God commands his people to sing, to sing praises to him, to teach and admonish one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We are to take the power of music and use it to glorify God, to shape ourselves and our children. A Christian is a worshiper, and as worshipers, we must worship God as he desires to be worshipped. And it is clear from the scriptures that, among other things, he desires to be worshipped through song. Do you need any other reason to sing to him in your homes? Is not the fact that he desires it more than enough? Is not the fact that he is worthy of it more than enough? Lead your family in daily family worship. For our final point this morning, let your life also be marked by a robust commitment to a local church. Now we did a whole sermon on membership already, so I'll be brief here. The Christian life is not meant to be lived in isolation, but we are to live lives that are integrated with other believers. Romans 12.5 says that we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. We see as well that the church is described as a family of faith. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. And so there is to be a familial closeness. Church members are not just acquaintances we happen to sit near once a week, like so many commuters on a bus. But we are to live close enough with one another that we would be able to bear one another's burdens. Galatians 6.2. To rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. Romans 12.15. We are to live closely enough with one another that we can hold each other accountable and help restore one another when someone falls into sin. Galatians 6.1. We are also to be involved in helping to disciple one another. 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, Titus 3 and 4. Titus 2, 3 and 4. Now we've been hammering home the fact that parents are to be the primary disciplers of their children. But this does not mean that they are the sole disciplers of their children. The church also plays an important role. Firstly, the elders of the church, the pastors or overseers, have the important duty to shepherd the flock of God entrusted to their care. Well, that includes the little ones among us, the, the little believers among us. 
Those who don't know Christ, we are to point to Christ, to bring to Christ, to evangelize. Similarly, the more mature and experienced Christians are to have a hand in helping the younger or newer Christians grow in the faith. Just think of this. If we are to be a body that loves one another, our love will help, will compel us to desire to help one another live out the faith, to grow in grace and knowledge of Christ. And we like to talk about a culture of discipleship or a culture where everyone understands that they have a duty to everyone else. The life of a disciple is therefore to be marked by a strong commitment to the local church. There will be no Christian culture without Christian community. And so paideia, the enculturation of a disciple, therefore requires robust commitment to Christian community. Soak yourselves and your children in Christian fellowship and community. Take every opportunity to be a part of the life of the church. Serve the church and be a blessing to the body. Now at this stage in the life of our church, if I could identify the single best way for the average church member to be a blessing to the body, it would be this. Simply come. Come and be a part of the things we are doing as a church. Come help our deacons set up chairs before the service. Come and pray with us. We meet at 9.15 every Lord's Day to pray for our church, for the service, for our community, our nation, and for the kingdom. Come to Sunday school. Immerse yourselves and your children in a biblical worldview. Now also as a side note, if teaching your children in family worship seems daunting, then please come to Sunday school. Part of why we teach the way we do is to help fathers learn how to do the same in their homes. Come as well to midweek study. Come to singing night. Men, even if you don't plan to preach, come to preacher's corner. We as pastors can talk about church community till we're blue in the face, and we may all get the warm fuzzies when we think about how nice that idea sounds. But unless you, the members, buy into this vision, it's not going to happen. You will not receive the benefits of church community unless you are part of the church community. And you will not be a blessing to others in the church community unless you are part of the church community. So come, come be a part of creating Christian culture, a culture of discipleship. Come be blessed and to be a blessing. To close this morning, let us remember that we have this weighty assignment to bring up our children in the paideia of the Lord. Every parent, therefore, must have an answer to this question. What are you doing to bring up your children in the paideia of the Lord? Let our answer be this. I am modeling the Christian life for them to the best of my ability. I am striving for zeal and passion. I am endeavoring to put sin to death in my own life and to pursue holiness. I am modeling a commitment to God's word so that his word would be on my heart. 
I am modeling a commitment to prayer, both at set times and spontaneously throughout the day. I am taking every opportunity to diligently teach my children to speak of the things of God when we sit in our house, when we walk by the way, when we lie down, and when we rise. I am seeking to instruct and shape them through daily family worship, reading, praying, and singing together. I am modeling a commitment to the body of Christ, seeking to be blessed and to be a blessing. In short, I am striving to live out the Christian life in my daily attitudes and practices. I am striving to live in such a way so that what I teach my children will be greatly strengthened by what they observe in me. I am aiming at multi-generational faithfulness, planting seeds and making disciples that Lord willing will see a far-reaching impact for the kingdom of God. Brothers and sisters, we have the privilege of being a part of the work that God is doing to redeem his fallen creation. So let us live in light of this high calling, bringing every area of life under the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ, applying his gospel and obeying his commands to all that we do. Let us play our part passionately as we live in the Missio Dei. Amen.